Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no unit complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, hold fast to my covenant, I I will give them within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And to the foreigners who bind themselves to me to minister to the Lord and love the name of the Lord and be his servants, those who keep the Sabbath and do not desecrate it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable On my altar for my house of prayer will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Let's do it. There's an old story about a pastor uh, years ago uh, having dinner with a new couple in the church. And in the middle of the dinner, uh, the wife looked at the fork and said, you know, this silverware is ugly. We should really get some new silverware. At which point, her husband stood up, took the fork, threw it on the plate, yelled an expletive, and walked out of the room. Well, the pastor didn't quite know what to do, so he looked at the fork and said, well, they look okay to me. And then the wife began to cry. And she said, Pastor, as you know, this is our second marriage. And all my husband brought from the house of his first marriage was the silverware. Yeah, when you have the back story, things start to make sense. A week ago, I was in Arizona. And uh, we were watching the uh, news station that came from Phoenix. And in the the news, they were showing a picture of a wall. It's a portable wall. A wall in different sections that has all these names on the wall. And we watched on the video as people went up and touched the names on the wall and tears came to their eyes. Now, of course, if you know the backstory of the Vietnam Memorial that travels around, this makes sense. Sometimes we just need to know the backstory to kind of figure out what is really going on. I tell you that because Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8 that we read this morning is the backstory for two of the most powerful stories in the New Testament. And if you know Isaiah and understand it, you will better understand these two New Testament stories. Here's the first one. There's a very rich man uh, riding in a chariot in, uh, in, the, in Acts chapter 8. This is after Jesus has died. He's risen. Holy Spirit has come down on the church at Pentecost. They're starting to go outside of Jerusalem and in Samaria. And they're starting to reach out to non-Jews with the gospel of Jesus. And there is a man from Ethiopia who's very wealthy. We know that because he's in a chariot. 
Uh, we know that because he owns his own copy of the scripture. And he's been to Jerusalem and he's on his way back. But it's interesting that he went to Jerusalem because he's, according to the Bible, got two strikes against him. First of all, the man is a eunuch, which means that whether by his own choice or whether because he was uh, involved uh, as a slave in human trafficking, he's been unable, uh, he's rendered unable as a male to reproduce. And uh, so as a eunuch, you are greatly desired in palaces and large houses for a couple, uh, for three reasons at least. First of all, you are safe around the harem. King doesn't have to worry about you. Uh, second thing is, because you can't have children, don't have children, you're safe in the palace intrigues and conspiracies because you're not likely to try to do something so that your child can move up the hierarchy or the rank in the palace. And the Persian rulers loved to have um, eunuchs in their palaces, and people in, employed them in large uh, Estates as well. And then the third thing, as one scholar put it in 21st century language, if you couldn't have children, didn't have a family, then you would always be on time for the things of the palace because you were never late driving the carpool. In a sense, you had no other responsibilities. So you could get very wealthy as a eunuch. And so this Ethiopian owns his own copy of Isaiah. The guy's rich. But according to the Bible in Deuteronomy 23, eunuchs aren't allowed in the assembly of God. And in verse 3, foreigners are not allowed in the assembly of God. And Ethiopia is as foreign a country as you can get. When I was growing up, my mom used to threaten to send me to Timbuktu. Did your parents ever do that? Um, It was like, you know, the jumping off point. Actually, after the 930 service, I met people who had been to Timbuktu. Um, But uh, Ethiopia in their day is like Timbuktu in my mother's day. It was just like, it's the jumping off place. It's as far away from our world as you can get. So this man's a foreigner, he's a eunuch, and for some reason he thinks he can go to the temple. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Holy Spirit leads Philip to come up to his chariot and say, what are you reading? He's like, well, I'm reading Isaiah. And they're reading about the Messiah. And so having read about the Messiah, the eunuch orders the chariot to stop and says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Well, if you know Isaiah in the back story, you know Isaiah's answer would be not a darn thing. Then there's another story. You probably know this one a little bit better. It's in the New Testament. It's the last week of Jesus' life. And he really upsets some people because he comes into the temple during Passover week. And and in the court of the Gentiles, the outside court of the temple, that's where they would do two things. One, they would trade your money because your Roman coins were no good in the temple. And, of course, the exchange rate always favored the temple. So you'd trade in your Roman money for their money, and then you would go to another table, and you would buy your Passover lamb at, of course, at the price that was set by the temple. And it was a complete ripoff. And Jesus comes to this and, uh, and basically cleans off the table where the money changers are and said, you've taken my house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. Well... There's a couple things I think we might need to know on this. First of all, Jesus is not Indiana Jones. He's not carrying a whip. And, and a lot of people have this picture of Jesus taking a whip after people and claim, Jesus owns no whip. Uh, but what, as a good Jew, he would have are little tassels on the bottom of his uh, robe. And so the tassels would indicate obedience to God's commandments. So apparently he took some of these tassels, tied them together, made a little cord, and cleaned off the table. And it's a symbolic action that says, these indicate keeping God's word, and you're not doing it. And why aren't you doing it? Because God had intended 
said um, the leaders, that 85% of the temple be dedicated to non-Jews. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if we put 85% of the space in our sanctuary, 85% of the parking lot for people who are not interested really in being Christian, but we save it open for them so they can hear. And you've taken their space for the nations and you've turned it into a mall. You've turned it into a marketplace. So the background is Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 and says, what we're supposed to be here is a place for everybody. And you have taken the very people God wants to reach and you've made it hard for them to come. So that's the backstory on what's going on. But what I want to do for a minute this morning is tell you Isaiah 56 actually has a back backstory. What I read you this morning is, is one side of an argument. And here's the two sides of the argument. One side of the argument apparently is a, is, are the priests who lead Jerusalem. They're called, um, they're from the tribe of Zadok. Now this is 700 years before Jesus' day. And they've been made priests. They replaced Aaron's family uh, during the days of King David. And they are saying, you know, when we build this new temple, we need to make sure that nothing um, impure gets in. Nothing out of bounds gets in. We need to be strict. So bad things never happen to us again. So we need to tighten the requirements on who gets in here. And they could quote Bible verses such as Deuteronomy 23:1, No eunuch shall come to the assembly of God. Um, and then they could quote Deuteronomy 23:3, Moabites, Ammonites, foreigners are not allowed in the assembly of God. They could even probably reference their contemporary Ezra, who's in charge of rebuilding the temple after it been destroyed. Ezra said, you know what our problem is in Israel? We got too many foreigners. And too many Israelites are marrying foreigners, and so you need to divorce them right now, and you need to stop all this nonsense, and we need to be pure. That was one side of the argument. But there's another side of the argument, and it's the side that Isaiah takes. This side of the argument is like, yes, we want to be biblical, but let's try on these biblical verses. 1 Kings 8, of course, they wouldn't have had chapters and verse back then, but in 1 Kings 8... King Solomon is praying for this new temple, the first, the first one that was built. And he says in verse 41, the strangest thing, he said, And God, when foreigners are in the temple praying, hear their prayer. What? I thought they weren't allowed in, according to Deuteronomy. And now you're praying, God, when they come in, hear their prayer. They're probably quoting that verse. Maybe they're quoting Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, You know, the reason I've called you is so you can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Or maybe, just maybe, they got a trump card up their sleeve. You probably know her. Her name is Ruth. Heard of her? Ruth wasn't an Israelite. Anybody know where, you know, I don't have a prize to give out. Anybody know what Ruth was? What country she was from? She is a Moabite. Ray got that. Ray, Deuteronomy 23.3 says, no Moabites. You can read it in your Bible. But here's Ruth. You know the story of Ruth, right? So Ruth, the Moabite, marries Boaz. They have a child who has a child who has a child who has a child who has a child. And his name is David. And he gets the orders from God to build the temple. And he has a son named Solomon who actually builds the temple. So here's what you're telling me. Ruth would not be allowed in the temple that her great-great-great-grandson got the order to build and... One generation later, the grandson built it. They're probably saying, it says no Moabites, but the ancestress of David and Solomon is a Moabite. 
Do you see what's going on? There's an argument, and apparently this is the side Isaiah takes. We are not going to exclude. We are going to include. If you look at the broader story of God from Genesis all the way to where we are now when they get ready to build the second temple, it takes occasionally a detour, but the movement of God is always including people who are not pure, who are not just like us, who don't fit all of our rules and guidelines. The arc of the Bible is that they are to be included. And so this is what Isaiah says. No more will the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. See, one of the problems with being a eunuch is you can't have kids. And the very first commandment for the Jews of 613 commandments in the Torah is go forth and, anybody? Multiply. And if you're a eunuch, you can't multiply. So by definition, you are already breaking a commandment. But God says, no, we're not saying that anymore. No longer will the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. In other words, I'm a dead end. In fact, God says, I'll give you something better than that. I'll give you a memorial and a name. And in Hebrew, the word is Yad, uh, Yad Vashem. I'm not trying to show off. I took Hebrew past fail. I don't know that much. But if you've ever been to Jerusalem, that name might ring a bell. The most famous Holocaust museum in the world is called Yad Vashem. And it lists the names and remembers the Jews that died in the furnaces. But it also, if you look remembers people like Oscar Schindler and foreigners who helped the Jews escape. They got a name and a monument. So God says to the eunuch, I'll give you something better than children. I'll give you the name. In other words, you're my beloved child. And then to the foreigner said, I'm going to give you a home. You don't think you have a home, but I'm going to tell you my house is going to be a house of prayer for everybody. So I think what Isaiah says is God wants everybody to have an identity as the beloved of God and a home where they know they belong to God. And I believe with all my heart the Holy Spirit agrees. Because the Holy Spirit told Philip, you go ahead and baptize that guy. You go ahead and baptize that foreigner who's a eunuch. You bring him in. And apparently the Holy Spirit told Jesus, you can clean off that table. You can, you can run these people out to make room For the foreigner, I truly believe it's God's desire that every one of us know ourselves to be beloved and know that when we come in here, we have a home. Now, if you read closely, though, there seems to be a condition attached. And you're probably thinking, yeah, there's always a catch. Here's the condition. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, says the Lord, to the foreigners who do not desecrate my Sabbath to the Lord. And before we think it's another condition and another rule that we keep, remember the Sabbath isn't about doing something. It's about not doing things. It is about trusting and relaxing in the goodness and the grace of God. And I don't think it is like, if you keep my Sabbath, I'll let you in. It's this. When you keep the Sabbath, it reminds you that you're already in. When I walk through these doors on a Sunday morning, I am reminded I belong. I have a name, an identity. I have a people. I have a family. And I'm reminded. And I think that's what Sabbath in its best does for us, is remind us who we are, we're beloved, and what we have, we have a home. And I think Isaiah and Jesus and the Holy Spirit would all agree. And so the problem and the question is, in our day, 
not much different from the one in Philip's day or from the one in Jesus' day or the one in Isaiah's day, which is really, do you believe it? Do you really believe that you are loved apart from anything you do? And that you are loved even when you do the things that you ought not to do? Do you believe that you have a name and that name is beloved? And then there's a second question. And do you believe that is true of other people even though they may not look like you, act like you, or keep the rules that you keep? It's fascinating. A few of you may have heard. I'm a, I'm a little bit past this point in the sermon, right at the punchline, right about the time people were waking up. And, and we have a visitor that we've had before a couple weeks ago. And he begins to yell at me. Um, and like it's a dialogue, utter some expletives. And, and it was fascinating to watch because he didn't look like us, dress like us, be quiet for the end of the sermon like us. And I watched one woman come over and just sit next to him. I watched some men come over and just kind of stand by him. And I was so proud of the group of people this morning because he could not have been more different than we at that 830 service are. And they did their best to welcome him. Now, granted, with Sutherland Springs in the back of everyone's mind, as he continued to be disruptive, we had to um, step up a little bit, the engagement with him. But, But I thought, that's what this is about. The question is, do you believe you're beloved? Do you believe you have a home? But more importantly, do you believe that of others? And a lot rides on your answer. I'm reminded about the late Fred Craddock, my favorite preacher and teacher of preaching. When he was working on his Ph.D. at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, he was pastoring at the same time a small church in Oak Ridge. You may be familiar with Oak Ridge, Tennessee. About the time he was there, uh, they started to build a big power plant in Oak Ridge. And so suddenly it changed. And the little church where his pastor began to change because people were moving into the community. They were moving in in tents. They were moving in in tenement housing. They were moving in in apartment buildings. And they didn't look or dress or act like the people that are normally at that church. And that created an existential crisis for that church. What are we supposed to do with all these new people? So like any good church, they did what they're supposed to. They held a meeting. And like any good church, the decision out of the meeting was, let's hold another meeting. And at the second meeting, the next Sunday night, the spouse of the head of the board got up to read a resolution that they would vote on. The resolution was this. Only those who hold and own land in the county shall be accepted as members of our church. And the resolution passed 48 to 1, and then the preacher was told actually his vote didn't count. So years later, after that debacle, he's teaching in Atlanta. He's off one day. So he said, I drive my, my, my spouse. And I said, yeah, I just want you to see the, the scene of one of my earliest defeats. And, it, you know, the church is a little bit off the main road. But he said, we didn't really have trouble finding it. But we were surprised because when we got to that little church, <laughs> the parking lot was filled. Pickup trucks, cars, 18-wheelers, the kind of folks that, 
some of them wouldn't have been let in the church back in the day. And he was like, this is impressive. I, I would have never thought they would have made it. And, and he got out of the car and he starts to walk toward the building. And then he looks and the front of the building where there was a cross, the cross isn't there anymore. And now there are three letters and every Texan recognizes the significance of these three letters. The three letters now where the cross used to be were these. B, B, Q. He looked at his wife and said, well, you know, actually it is close to lunchtime. Let's go in. And he said there by the old hand-pumped organ was the salad bar. And he looked around by the stained glass and saw truckers and people of uh, different um, nationalities than when he was there. And he thought, these are the very people in this restaurant who would have been never been welcomed when it was a church. And because they weren't, it's no longer a church. We're a church. We can do what a restaurant does and a lot more.